0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. We have another heavy hitter on the show today. The man you are about to meet has been a constitutional attorney practicing constitutional law for 50 years. That's 5-0, ladies and gentlemen. He has practiced, written, taught, litigated about the Constitution and constitutional law His entire professional life has been devoted to this very subject. He is a marvelous teacher, also giving an online course for people that are interested. He is an author and was seminal in the writing of the first gold clause that ever was. He is an author of so many books, but the one we want to talk about today is the gold clause, what is it, and how to use it profitably? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Henry Mark Holzer to its rainmaking time. Welcome, sir. Glad to be here. Well, I think the first thing you have to know is that I didn't know about you prior to interviewing Edwin Vieira. And he had spoken very highly of your book even though he has published his own book and about you. And so I went to look you up, and when I went to your site, the site was so robust and your background was so thick in the Constitution that I thought we better start talking about this. And I was very excited about your class. Talk about your class for a moment.
1: Well, uh, I decided not long ago, particularly after the advent of all these Tea Party groups and so much talk about constitutional law, that, uh, unfortunately, most lay people, including patriots like the people in the Tea Party movement, don't know very much, if anything, about American constitutional law except anecdotally. You know, Miranda rights are bad, and the interstate commerce clause has been twisted all out of proportion. That's not enough if you're going to fight for this country and fight for the Constitution you need to know more. So what I've done is I've designed a course, which I am giving live beginning this Sunday for 10 consecutive Sundays, two hours about constitutional law, and I'm doing that live so that I can get it recorded. And that's all sold out, by the way. But beginning probably next Wednesday and Every Wednesday after the Sunday, when I do it live, it will be up on my website. And you have to promise not to laugh. I'm going to uh, charge the grand sum of $2.50 per hour, <laughs> which means that each two hour uh, lecture is going to cost uh, somebody $5 to download it. And, um, my reason—I have several reasons for that, but not the least of which is that that it's symbolic. In other words, people have to be willing to belly up and spend five dollars to hear me talk about American constitutional law for two hours. I—I've concluded, unfortunately, that what people get for free, they tend to disvalue.
0: And I agree with you.
1: Not take seriously. On the other hand, I, I want to make it available virtually for free to everybody in this country who's interested in listening to it.
0: Um,
1: and I compromised between $1,000 an hour, which is what lawyers charge, and zero at $2.50. <laughs> so, so there you have it. If anybody <laughs> wants information about it, I suggest what they do is uh is next wednesday go on to uh, my website which is uh, henry dot com
0: spell it would you
1: yeah it's h e n r y m a r k h o l z like zebra e r dot com and then just push the button that says constitutional law courses and it'll take them exactly where they need to go and then they can they can buy it you know just by pushing a button it's um I must say, I, I, uh, I'm very excited about it for, for at least two reasons. One is the content, and, and by the way, on that website will be the entire syllabus for the ten lectures, um, and it's very exciting material. And the other reason, of course, is that I'm going to pitch it to a lay level. In other words, it's not like I'm going to be talking to lawyers, let alone constitutional lawyers. I'm going to be talking to lay people men and women who who want a a serious understanding of the basic principles behind, well, even the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights.
0: I think that's extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary, because I think we're too far removed from it in day-to-day society now with our cell phones and computers and telephones and TV sets. We're just in other worlds. Well, the beauty of
1: way the way this is set up is that if somebody does go on the uh, on the website, they can download uh, the lectures onto anything. I'm I'm not 12 years old, so I don't understand all of the gizmos that are out there, um, like uh, blackberries and blueberries and iPods and MP3s and all of that. But I'm told by knowledgeable 12 year olds that. Um, if somebody goes to my website, they will be able to download all of these lectures onto whatever gizmo they like.
0: That's fabulous.
1: And listen to it anywhere, you know, in a, in a car, at the beach, and even in a movie theater, if you don't like this.
0: Why is it important now more than ever? Or why does it feel like it's important now more than ever?
1: Well, it, it's, it, it, it's not just that it feels like, but it, it is more important because people are are in the streets at least figuratively if not literally yet um, fighting for this country there are millions of them all over the country and i don't mean to disparage them but the fact is they they are not armed i mean they are from an intellectual i, I can't quickly think of an apt metaphor or or analogy but I mean they're in there with their bare hands fighting against people not just politicians but but intellectuals on the on the left and the media, and, and the school systems and everybody else they're fighting with their bare hands against these people who have very heavy weapons and and the people that are fighting the tea party people and everybody else need to be armed and that's what i'm trying to do i mean you take for example uh... Just to pick a, a case out of uh, out of uh, the air, uh, Roe v. Wade. There are a lot of people, um, rightly, uh, against the the uh, law, if you will, in quotes, that came out of Roe v. Wade, an abortion on demand, essentially, and uh, they they uh, oppose it on religious grounds. They oppose it on various other kind of grounds. But what they don't know is that the genesis of the seeds of Roe v. Wade are found in a case called Griswold against Connecticut back in the 60s. And Griswold dealt with a Connecticut statute, that uh, that uh, state statute that prevented, believe it or not, the use of contraceptives in a marital relationship. Well, you know whether that's a good law or bad law. Or if, is, is irrelevant. It's a bad law and is one of the justices characterized it, even a silly law. But Douglas, Justice Douglas, in a three-page opinion, concocted out of smoke and mirrors a so-called right of privacy. Now, where did he find that? And these are his words. In emanations from penumbras. huh? What is e- that? Emanations... Vibrations, I guess, not to make a pun, um, emanations from penumbras, which are kind of uh, peripheral things, in in, in, in some of the Bill of Rights provisions. For example, he had the temerity to say that the Third Amendment, which nobody ever talks about, dealing with not being able to quarter soldiers in private homes in times of peace, which was an issue in revolutionary days, bespeaks of privacy. Hmm? Okay? The Fourth Amendment, which deals with search and seizure, you need a warrant, bespeaks of, in his words, privacy. And he went through all of the various amendments and, and the subdivisions of the, the amendments, and he spun this this web, all of which, to him, added up that the Bill of Rights is really concerned with, quote, privacy. And somehow that concept is applicable to um, contraceptive use in a marital relationship. Now, what he would do about people who fornicate on the beach, I don't know. But nonetheless, he spun this web. And that was it. So they held a statute unconstitutional, even though the legislature, two bodies in, in Connecticut, had enacted it. And the governor had signed it. In other words, this was democracy in Connecticut, like it or not. He he invalidated it. Okay, that was bad enough. Now comes Roe v. Wade with 50 states, every one of the states in this so-called federalist system with a national government and constituent states, every one of which has some kind of law inhibiting, in some way or other, abortion. Now, put aside whether you approve of that or you don't approve of it. The fact of the matter is that those laws were there. So drawing on, building on, utilizing as a precedent even, Douglas's Ertzat's right of privacy, they said, oh, well, we've already decided that there is such a thing as privacy, quote, end quote, and what could be more, quote, private, quote, than the abortion decision. So all of these 50 states statutes are unconstitutional. Now, we're supposed to be in in a federalism system where there's a national government that has its sphere and state governments which have their sphere. So the federal Supreme Court wiped out all the state statutes. We're also supposed to have a system of separation of powers. So in that decision, as well as Griswold, we find a federal court deleting statutes enacted by state legislatures. So we not only find in in Roe, for example, and I'm not obsessed with this, but it's just a good example. We find in Roe a a terrible violation of federalism, a terrible violation of separation of powers, right? And, and, And a decision that affects countless millions of women and unborns, um, based on, and not even sand, air, in the Griswold decision. Now, I don't expect somebody at a Tea Party rally or protest in in front of their congressman's office to be able to explain this to, to this ninny, but at least if they know it and they understand it, they can make some kind of an argument or, for, or, or form some kind of a question.
0: Really what you're describing is the sweeping powers of federal government that have extended their powers and are taking powers over from the states. Is that Well, what you're yes.
1: I mean, the Tenth Amendment says, that, to paraphrase, that if a, a, a power is not explicitly delegated to the federal government in the Constitution or in the Constitution prohibited to the states and there are very few of those like impairment of contract they are reserved respectively to the states or the people or and the people so that's what a federal system means but you'd never know it I mean for example the interstate commerce clause has been interpreted to allow the federal government to control a railroad that never left the borders of a given state It was an intra-state railroad. What did the Supreme Court decide? Way back in the 30s. What did it decide? It decided it affects interstate commerce. Well, what doesn't by that standard? And if, if there's nothing that doesn't affect interstate commerce, then under the interstate commerce clause, Congress can pass laws affecting anything.
0: In my interview with Edwin Vieira, he was talking about the Commerce Clause. Is this the same thing? Yes,
1: yes, exactly. So
0: there's a portal very much like executive order can bypass
1: everything. Well, to a considerable extent, yes. I mean, Carter issued an executive order that said any American claims against uh, Iran after their revolution in the 70s had to be settled by a commission that was to be set up and not uh, and, and disallowed um, any affected Americans individuals or companies to sue in court and and that's a whole other ball of wax, whether or not by executive order the president could circumvent the treaty requirements um, whether I mean it just
0: <laughs> after fifty years, where do you stand right now watching the history and everything you've watched related to? the founding documents?
1: Well, I mean...
0: What is it like to be you, knowing what you know, being in practice?
1: It's an excellent, and and I take it as well, a sympathetic question. It's very, very difficult. It's very, very difficult. I I mentioned previously that uh, in an earlier conversation you and I had that my last book was on the first 15 terms or years of uh, Justice Thomas, Clarence Thomas. It's called the Supreme Court Opinions of Clarence Thomas, 91 to 06. Thomas is an originalist. He um, he uh, reads the Constitution, and that's what it says, so that's what it means. If it's not clear um, what, it, what it means, he looks to see what it meant to the people who wrote it. Um, so one of his... I was going to say favorite subjects, but I guess it's unfavorite subjects, is what's happened to the Eighth Amendment uh, provision which deals with cruel and unusual punishments. And as the word punishments makes very clear, what that was designed to do was to prevent punishments which were cruel and unusual like drawing and quartering somebody, etc. Well, that clause, that provision has been so perverted that it gave rise to a whole new field of law, which is peopled by um, practitioners of the left dealing with the so-called prisoner's rights. So if somebody gets sent uh, sent up the river and he's a, a vegan like I am, and he says to the warden, I want vegan food
0: you can't
1: have food. We feed everybody the same way. I mean, you eat it or you don't eat it. That's how it is. Oh, no, he says. I'm going to call the ACLU, and they're going to start a lawsuit, and they're going to claim that under the federal civil rights statute, you're violating my, quote, Eighth Amendment right not to be free of cruel and unusual punishment. In other words, it's cruel and unusual punishment under the Eighth Amendment and the Federal Civil Rights Act not to give me vegan food. Figure it out. I can't eat meat, poultry, fish, uh, dairy products, or eggs. So you figure out how to do it. Or I have a right to wear a beard as a Muslim in in a high-security prison where I could hide a weapon or something. Or a yarmulke if I'm an Orthodox Jew or whatever. Or not to have conjugal visits. Or, believe it or not, there was a case that said there weren't enough tables in the prison law library and the hours weren't long enough. That's can wild. You, can you imagine that? That's really wild. No, but it's it's infinitely worse than the specific case. <laughs> What's worse is that this kind of, of uh, I, I wouldn't even deign to call it analysis, that this kind of... of or thinking for that matter this this kind of something could 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 pervert and poison and corrupt a a a constitutional amendment that was in the original bill of rights now, if that's possible, if the eighth amendment, which bespeaks against cruel and unusual punishment, can wind up through a bunch of interpretations by Succeeding Supreme Courts to mean that virtually anybody in prison can complain about virtually anything, whether they succeed or not. We have come a long, long, long way from the original understanding. And you ask me, how does that make me feel? It makes me feel terrible. And it makes me feel pessimistic. Pardon me. And it scares me.
0: I have something that scares me that I want to talk about, and it has to do with the language being used to describe the Constitution as being a living, breathing, changeable, malleable document. Have you heard that?
1: (laughs) I've heard it, and I've written about it, and and there's a, a lot on that in my book about Justice Thomas, of course. And it comes, I mean, the high priest of that was William J. Brennan, um, Supreme Court justice, by the way, appointed by Eisenhower, Republican, um, as were other um, appointments by Republicans, like Souter by Bush one, Kennedy by uh, by uh, Reagan. What they have done successfully, for the most part, starting with the Warren Court in the '60s, is they have made social policy through the guise of Supreme Court interpretations. That's what they have done. They are an unaccountable branch of government. The two so called political branches of government are the legislature and the executive, the president. They are politically accountable. If the people don't like what they're doing, they can be thrown out and even impeached. Um, the Supreme Court, indeed, the whole federal judiciary, the district courts, the courts of appeal, and the Supreme Court are untouchable. They are life appointments, nothing can be done. There's nothing that they would do that would suffice to be an impeachable offense. So they are there forever. They can do whatever they damn please, and they do. And what they have done is they have treated the Constitution like a statute or an ordinance on a local level, which can be amended, changed, repealed, whatever they want to do with it, not understanding, or or maybe better not caring, that it is the fundamental charter of government there is a textual mechanism for amending that constitution. That it shouldn't be, although it has been, amended through what purports to be legitimate interpretation. That's this notion of a living constitution. Living. So you just water it and, and hope it grows here, and you hope it grows there. And that's a pernicious doctrine it has done. An incredible amount of harm, particularly in the areas of the of the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments, which um, contain the the criminal procedure uh, provisions, like self-incrimination and double jeopardy, and search and seizure, and the rest.
0: Isn't it also true that one of the pervasive or insidious parts of calling the Constitution a living, breathing, changeable, malleable document? Is that through incrementalism you can alter everything? Well, you yes, know?
1: and 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 uh, unfortunately, because incrementalism is a little sneaky, you know. That's what not, I mean. Pay, if you're not paying attention, you wake up one day and you say, "Ah, what happened?" But it, it, it's so brazen. Uh, so often, they don't even have to do it incrementally. I mean, take capital punishment. Capital punishment, the death penalty, is mentioned what four or five times in the Constitution. Supreme Court held back in the Brennan Warren era that it's unconstitutional. <laughs> Something provided in the Constitution is unconstitutional. Now that wasn't incremental. I mean, they just blew it away, to put it colloquially. Mm-hmm. So it's it's in, certainly the incremental um, ism. Is, uh, is is one aspect of it, and it's pernicious. But sometimes they just take it head on. They say we're changing the rules. I mean, what does the Fifth Amendment say about having to, with the self-incrimination provision of the Fifth Amendment, say about having to tell uh, someone in custody that he's entitled to a lawyer? Well, they say it's not fair. I mean, how would this poor guy know, putting aside that that all the criminals knew anyway? to keep their mouth shut. No, we have to tell him. Well, it's okay, so he's got a right to a lawyer. They say, well, wait a minute. He may have a right to a lawyer, but where's he going to get one? They say, oh, well, now we're going to have to tell him not only is he a right to a lawyer, not only does he have a right to keep his mouth shut, but if he doesn't have a lawyer, we'll get him a lawyer. And wait a second, what happens? We're waiting for the lawyer to come down to the precinct. Well, we better tell him that anything he says can be used against him. Now, how do they get that out of the Fifth Amendment? I'll tell you how they get it out. That's their view of what society should do. You
0: it's, mean
1: it's not in the Fifth Amendment? It's not, no. Fifth Amendment says, in effect, nobody can be forced to incriminate himself. Now, what did that mean originally? That meant you couldn't beat a confession out of somebody. The The touchstone of it before Miranda... The criteria, if you will, the litmus paper was voluntariness. In other words, was a confession voluntary or not?
0: I don't think most of them are.
1: And then what they did well but what they did was they then then decided that if you didn't have a lawyer, it couldn't possibly be voluntary. You could go on the Jay Leno show and confess to something with smiles and, and, and eating, eating oysters and drinking champagne. Etc. with absolutely no sense of, or an iota of, um, of coercion and confess to something. And that wasn't, and that wouldn't be, it would be admissible if the standard were voluntariness. But even if you did that, if you hadn't, if you were in custody, if you were like handcuffed to some cop on the talk show, it wouldn't be admissible if, unless they had given you Miranda warnings. Can you imagine that? Wow. and But, but coming back to, to the central question that you asked earlier, and this, is, and this is a crucially important one, why do people need to know this? People need to know this in order to make any effective arguments. They need to be imbued with a a, a feeling and an understanding that this is not how it was supposed to happen, and it was it's not the way it's supposed to be, and that the Constitution, in this and in almost every other respect, has been has been subverted and perverted. I mean, Brown against Board of Education. I'm jumping around. The the desegregation decision of uh, government segregation um, was supposed to um, prevent or supposed to end racial segregation in this country and, and by, by implication and then later explicitly racial discrimination. Segregation is, of course, a form of discrimination. So now they, the, the liberals took over the academy, and what did they do? They started discriminating against white people by imposing quotas on how many of them could go to, to graduate school, say. But that was okay somehow, because after all, we're all guilty for what happened in Georgia in 1710. Now, if, if, if you, it used to be, and this is very interesting, because I was brought up, my parents were Jewish, I was brought up in a Jewish family. In those days, in the 30s and, and 40s and even later, there were quotas about Jews uh, in, in, say, medical schools in New York and elsewhere quotas, actual quotas, ah we gotta get three Jews for this entering class and uh, and uh, of course the jewish community was appalled at that, etc and now it's okay with them if there are quotas on, on whites. I talked to an admissions director of a law school a week ago and not to try to get somebody in, I just needed some information so a young man called me and said he was interested in going to law school, and I asked him what his LSAT was. You know, law school aptitude test and his GPA, college, etc. And he told me, and I said, well, that doesn't sound great, but let me find out what schools in this country would take you with that level. So I called an admissions director at a law school um, here in in the West, and uh, whom I know, and I asked him about it. And you know what the first question he asked me was? No. Is he white? And this is a guy who say that was,
0: again. Tell me what the first question
1: was. My question was, here are the numbers. and where, what schools in the country could he get into with these numbers? And this admissions director here in California said to me, the first thing he said, is he white? Why
0: does it matter? Her
1: implication is if he was white, it probably wouldn't be so good, and if he wasn't white, he'd have a better chance. And this guy is not in sympathy, by the way, with the quotas or racial classifications. But that's the first question he asked me a week ago.
0: That's pretty stunning.
1: Now, if that's not discrimination, I don't know what is. But that's okay, because it's, quote, good discrimination. Thomas, in, 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 in Gruder, I think, it's in my book, makes a wonderful point about the distinction, people who try to draw these distinctions between good discrimination and bad discrimination. A discrimination in a good cause and discrimination in a bad cause.
0: It's going on all the time anyway, on some level, whether it's conscious or not, don't you think?
1: Well, yeah, but what people, and this is another example of of what people need to know and an argument that they, they need to be armed to make is that there's a hell of a distinction between doing that on a governmental level, which is supposed to be colorblind, and a private level. I mean, if I don't want a Swede cleaning my house, that's my business. If I don't like Swedes, the people from Sweden, okay, that's me. It's my house, it's my rugs, it's my vacuum cleaner, and if I don't want people who are from Sweden using my vacuum cleaner, that's my business. But when it comes to the government, it's very, very different, because as Thomas points out... It's a cliché even now. Uh, Government's supposed to be colorblind.
0: What do you think about the constitutionality of being told that you have to buy medical insurance from the federal government?
1: Well, I think flatly it's unconstitutional. I I mean, even if you stretch the Interstate Commerce Clause as far as as it has been stretched, um, this is beyond the pale. This... (laughs) This is um, forcing people to do something that they don't want to do, not preventing them from doing something that they want to do that might be considered antisocial, like killing people. Um, So that's, that's one point. And a good analogy, of course, is automobile insurance. Now, some of the people who are the three people that are left in support of this say, oh, well, the government, the state forces you to buy auto insurance. Well, that's equivocal because they require you to buy liability insurance because if you hit some guy, you have to pay for it. They don't make you buy collision insurance. Right, right. That's the whole case on, on mandatory insurance. But what's below it, what's beneath it, is what's so pernicious, and that is that they, I mean, whatever their other motives, and there are plenty, economic and financial and and social and otherwise. What they're doing is they're telling you what they think you ought to do to enhance or protect your life. Well, you know, I haven't talked... That
0: also includes what services and the kind of services... That those institutions are going to be offering, which have nothing to do with alternative therapies and modalities, which has nothing to do with life extension, which has nothing to do with ninety percent of FDA stopped remedies that are squelched and not even allowed to get to the public. Seriously. Well,
1: well that's very, very true, and that's that's another corner uh-huh. of this thing that makes it so so dangerous. Uh, but another a related aspect to that, is that it's simply, and, and an important one, is that it's simply another example of how government is trying, and unfortunately succeeding, more and more to tell you how you can live your life and what, in its judgment, and the judgment of the do-gooders who work for them, uh, are, are most uh, lead to a, a most successful life on your part. I mean, I could I could regale you with examples of that that have existed for years. But when when you're talking about medical care, you're talking about you're talking about life and death. I mean, are they going to tell me that I can't be a vegan because I need to eat red meat because that's somehow good for me,
0: or genetically modified food?
1: Well, that's right. I mean, but why Why not? Why not? I mean, there's, there's no reason in principle, given everything else they've already gotten away with and everything that they're proposing, that it can't lead to that kind of thing. I mean, obesity is, quote, a national problem, quote, okay? So now they're going to cut obese people down to X calories a, a day because, after all, the government has to pay to care for these people and whatever. I mean, there, there, this, is, this is beyond a slippery slope. I mean, this is a, a, a greased slope where this thing is heading. And, and unfortunately, it's happening because uh, of, of these, these politicians and the president. And that's happening because people are sending those people there and giving them power to do these things. Ultimately, the fault is is whoever lives next door to you and me. That's the the problem. I mean, we have a fat and happy and stupid and disinterested um, large population in this country. And if that sounds harsh, then so be it. I mean, these people didn't just materialize out of thin air. Somebody sent Barney Frank there and somebody sent Chris Dodd there and somebody sent... Uh, Dirk in there and for that matter Obama as well
0: it just appears that the freedoms of the American people are slowly being chipped away at every facet you turn now this new thing that happened in the airport uh, with the airline and the quote terrorist supposed that was on that plane right this technology for screening people has been ready to roll out for a long time And these machines are so dangerous, their level of pollution on people, the public has no idea. So when I go through airports, personally, I'd rather be frisked than go through the ionizing radiation over and over and over and over.
1: The problem in the the machines are used for presumably to detect terrorism, terrorists, right? Right. Well, I mean, is that the end at which to start? We will never prevent all of that. You could give everybody a body cavity search, strip them naked, and interview them and interrogate them for a week. Do you really think that's going to stop some guy from blowing up a plane when when the maintenance crews have free access to the airplanes, when they can put luggage in um, in the hold, when they can they can bribe a, a stewardess or threaten a, I'm sorry a flight attendant? Um, or threaten the flight attendant if you don't put this in the bathroom when you take off, we're going to kill your brother or your mother or your kid. Do you really think that those machines, even at optimal use, and even if they were medically acceptable and socially acceptable and politically acceptable and economically feasible, are going to stop anybody?
0: No, because I think there's a front end and a back end to every event. Every event that has its own complexity and footprint, if you know what I'm saying.
1: You have to go to the source. You have to go to the source. Where is this terrorism coming from, mainly? That's where you have to go. And, and you know, I, I don't know, you know, your views on this. And, and whatever they are, you're certainly entitled to them. But you have to kill people. You do. You have to kill people. I mean, we had a choice in World War II after Europe, the war in Europe was over, to Truman did, to either attack the mainland or to drop the bombs. And we dropped the bombs after telling people to get out, and a lot of people were killed. But if you look at the campaign on a little bitty island, a little bitty island like Guadalcanal or Iwo Jima or Tarawa, and look at the casualties that were suffered so quickly in such a microcosm. And then think about what an invasion of the Japanese mainland would have been like. We dropped the bomb. And a lot of people died. But a whole lot more people, and they, would have, they were Americans, would have died if we had done something different. The same is true here. We have to go where these nests are. I had an ant problem in, in the master bath here. I had some ants, so you know, for a day or so we just killed the ants we saw. Um, but that didn't get rid of the ants. And then what I did is I got an exterminator in here and he put out some traps with bait. and The ants ate the bait and they took it back to the ant heaven or wherever they were. And uh, they all died. And this is no different. We have to go to the places where these people fester, where they grow where they arm, and we have to kill them. Because if we don't, they're going to keep killing us. And God help us if they get their hands on weapons of mass destruction. I mean, we saw what what basically just average people could do with, uh, with four jet planes.
0: There's weapons what? of mass destruction. I don't want to get too far off topic, but there's weapons of mass destruction in our food supply and in our water. So I understand what you're saying, but weapons of mass destruction are in our own homes.
1: Well, I understand that.
0: Many of the leaders of certain governments in the United States of America have condoned aspartame and other types of neurotoxic chemicals into our food and uh, and fluorine into our water supply. And so principally, I understand what you're saying, but... Terrorists are everywhere.
1: Well, you know, but so's bad food, and there's a direct analogy to what I said and what you said, Um, and and I think all the more so what you said. The government mandates, like fluoridation, this, and people have no choice. So what has to happen is two things: one, people have to be educated about fluoride, say, and two, you have to get the government out of the way and let people make their own choices.
0: Well, our water supply not only has fluoride, but it has so many chemicals, toxic chemicals, oh, yeah, sure. pharmaceuticals dumped into yeah. it, and people drink it, and they have no clue, absolutely and no clue. And
1: of steroids. Why, why, why do you think I'm a vegan? <laughs> I mean, not simply for humane reasons, which is a lot of it, but, uh, I mean, my God, I mean, we don't want to talk about this because people may have just had lunch, but... Chickens?
0: Yes, I know.
1: Fish. Livestock.
0: The agribusiness is a whole other subject, but it let's
1: go. Sure, it sure it's
0: a terrible, terrible the agro processors taking animals out alive. It's so inhuman I can't even believe it exists on this planet.
1: Listen, one of my other hats is that I am chairman of an organization called International Society for Animal Rights. And it's a humane education organization, and we do a lot of education on these very issues. I just wrote, I just wrote and, and edited a 120-page uh, a monograph on on puppy mills and uh, and commercial uh, dog and cat breeders, and uh, we did another one on mandatory spay neuter. I am not unmindful of, of the animal problems in this country, including agribusiness. And-
0: Terrible. The agri-processors. I was watching a quick news blurb on the television set of Sarah Palin. It was around Thanksgiving. They took this live turkey, they put it into a machine, and they grinded it alive right in the background. I thought I was going to fall on the floor.
1: Kind of a, what kind of a show is this?
0: It was like a news brief. about. She was talking about turkeys, and right behind her, you see the turkey being grinded up alive in a machine. I'm telling you, oh my god! I absolutely came apart. Oh my god! I absolutely came apart, and I started to talk to friends of mine about it. I can't talk about it too much; it upsets me so much.
1: Well, believe me, l- l- I know how you- it-
0: it's so disturbing. Can we move to the Gold Clause book yes, and your can. seminal work with writing the first statute or legislation yes, the on the Gold, gold Clause. Clause? Talk about
1: it. When Roosevelt and his cronies in Congress in '34 illegalized the private ownership of gold, they had to at the same time illegalize something called the Gold Clause. And what the gold clause was then, and and now is again, we'll get to that. Um, the gold clause was a con- simple contractual provision which said that if I lend you a thousand dollars, when you repay that, you have to repay me in dollars at a uh, which have the same purchasing power that when I loaned you the money. And we can do that in one of two ways, either. You can pay me in gold, which presumably, would the price of which would appreciate, with as as uh, as the dollar as paper money became worth less, or you could pay me more paper money um, based on the value of gold at that time. In other words, it was a way for creditors to assure that they received back in what the, what they loaned something of, of uh, purchasing power equal to what it was worth when they loaned it, okay? And that could be done in any kind of formulation. You could you could express that any way you like. And if you look at leases um, in, in that period, which was essentially post-Civil War when it began in, the, let's say, 1870, um, you would find railroad bonds, and I, I have an old one here, which says that explicitly, that it's payable in in gold. I have a $20 um, bill, a a currency, $20, which says "Pardon me, payable, redeemable in gold. You could take it down to a bank or the the government somewhere, a Treasury Department, and you give them the $20 piece of paper and they'd give you $20 worth of gold at whatever the price, $20.67 it was at that time. That was the provision, so when when Roosevelt outlawed the private ownership of gold, uh, they had to outlaw the gold clause as well, and uh, it went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, "Yeah, yeah, we know, and you're really not supposed to do this, but this was really a terrible emergency, so it's okay." So they held it unconstitutional, and the gold ownership and the gold clause uh were illegal at that point when the movement began in the late 60s to restore the right to own gold privately. A corollary of that, connected to that, was what's going to be with the gold clause. So we got a gold ownership legalized in, I guess, early the early 70s. And then I was asked uh, by uh, Jesse Helms, who was then in the Senate from North Carolina, to draw legislation that would legalize the gold clause as well. It was it was really a, a, a Siamese twin arrangement. If you could own gold, <laughs> then obviously you could you could use gold clauses. And I did, and it was introduced in the Senate, and a, a companion bill was introduced in the House by Phil Crane, and it was passed. In other words, gold clauses were re-legalized, or de-unlegalized, uh, illegalized. And um, not, notwithstanding that, they, uh, from then till now even, they are not widely in use.
0: And this is another thing that is of great interest to me. There are many, many people on earth that want to begin to do metals contracts to actually do business and use payments in metals, gold, silver, platinum. Many people want to use gold money at goldmoney.com, James Turk's organization. And this is very, very exciting to begin to monetize contracts in metals. But I've met very few people that, A, even know that they exist, and, B, can work with them.
1: Well, the the uh, not knowing they exist is is absolutely right. I was going to say it right on the money, but I accused of making a pun. But it's true. Most people are unaware of it. People who are aware of it um, – Many of them don't know how to do it, which is silly because it's very easy to do. And some of them are afraid that if they did, it would be legalized again, which is, I think, very unlikely. And finally, um, as uh, as I've noted in several places in the past, including on in my blog, I wrote a piece on this.
0: And also, give us the name of your blog. Well, piece. that's
1: Henry Mar- W. Henry Holzer, again. Dot blog blogspot b l o g spot.com there's an article there about not only whether gold will be illegalized again, but also I think a five-part article on the gold clause but the point is that <clears throat> pardon me, is that um, a lot of people who at first blush would look like candidates for the gold clause in other words, the creditors, people who would look like creditors, like banks who would want a gold clause they make a loan, say, in a mortgage and, uh, they want to be sure that when, let's say, let's say a corporate note where there's interest for a year and then a balloon payment, the whole balance is due, say in five years, that they want to be sure that they'd get enough money back to equal the purchase, the, the diminution of purchasing power, um, during those five years from inflation or government, other government manipulation of, of money. Those people are not simply creditors, they are also debtors to somebody else, to some other bank or the Fed or the Treasury Department or China. So they, I think, if they've thought it through, are concerned about having themselves to pay back as debtors more than the face amount of the loan. You follow me?
0: Yeah, but one question keeps coming to mind about this is that in the actual application of doing a metals contract is that when you go to do a metals contract, you're still dealing with the U.S. dollar being the reserve currency, and therefore everything is weighted against that denomination. Mm -hmm. If, in fact, that denomination of the reserve currency is no longer a monetizable currency, which many people in high places feel and think is coming down the pike in not only in our lifetime but in the next year, then how would one do a gold or silver or platinum contract without a reserve currency to
1: monetize it? Well, let's be, let's be specific and, and use a, an example, um, which I think will answer your question and, and, and uh, inform your your listeners. Let's say for the sake of argument. That you want to borrow a thousand dollars from me today, and we sign a uh, not a demand note, but a, a fixed date note. In other words, I'll lend you a thousand dollars today. You give me back a thousand dollars tomorrow. Conventionally, I would give you ten hundred dollar bills, and a year from today, you would give me ten hundred dollar bills. And let's say, <clears throat> pardon me, that's transaction one. And if there's ten percent inflation and I'm using these numbers just because they're round numbers, there's 10% inflation. You say, boy, that's terrific, because I owe hundred, $1,000, but we know a year from now, now that it's been a year, that's really only worth 90 So in a sense, I, the borrower, had $1,000 to use to buy a used car that cost $1,000, and I'm paying back $900, right?
0: I don't get that. Say that again.
1: Well... Let I lend you a thousand dollars today.
0: Oh, I get what you said. I you you get a what you thousand said.
1: and you buy yeah. a used car. Okay, art, I get right? it. You got a thousand dollars worth of value today. A year from now, you pay me back ten hundred dollar bills, a thousand dollars.
0: Right. You mean your purchasing power is only worth nine hundred dollars?
1: You, you've you've repaid ninety percent. I've got nine hundred dollars worth of purchasing power. Right. Correct?
0: Right, but most people don't think of it that way, well, but that's correct. Right,
1: well, let me go on and let's not worry about other people for the moment. Okay? If instead, I give you either the $100 or the $1,000, or I give you, let's say gold is worth is, is it $1,000, I give you an ounce of gold. I say, do what you want, you get your car, give it to the dealer, take it to the bank, take it to gold, silver ink or something, get the dollars to give to the used car deal. I don't care. but a year from now, I want that ounce of gold back. You say, well, I don't know I go to the store and get the gold. it's a pain in the neck. I'll tell you what. I'll give you dollars, but I'll give you as many dollars it takes in a year as it takes to buy an ounce of gold. right? Okay. And I'm completely protected against any diminution, diminution of purchasing power. Correct? Correct. Yeah. It's as simple as that. I mean, I don't care whether you're dealing with $100 or $1,000 or a $1 trillion. The principle is identical. If I want to protect, as a, as a lender, if I want to protect the, the purchasing power of my money, it's got to be measured in something objective and we don't have to go into the litany of why gold is good because there's not a lot of it, and it's interchangeable, and everybody likes it and whatnot. If I want to protect my purchasing power, I've got to have it indexed against something that will protect its purchasing power, which in this environment is gold and, by the way, silver as well.
0: Yes.
1: It's that simple. So
0: why aren't more of us doing metals contracts when we're doing business.
1: Well, I don't know who you mean by us, uh, but uh, you, you said it a few minutes ago. People don't know, people don't care, people don't know who to talk to, they don't know where to go.
0: In my discussion with Edwin Vera, he said that a lot of the attorneys, the accountants, the influencers around people that are doing business, it's foreign to them
1: absolutely and said, that's probably why he wrote the book
0: so it's about getting access to the doability of this
1: yeah, But remember it- what I said and that is that a lot of uh, parent creditors are also uh, in a different sense but real a real sense uh, themselves debtors and and in my book my original book on uh, on the gold clause I mentioned that that a lot of them are, um, are debtors themselves, and they don't want to be on the hook for having to pay more. I mean, let's say for the sake of argument, in my example, that today gold's $1,000 an ounce, and we provide that when you pay me back, I want an ounce of gold. I forget the paper, you know, and all of that. I want you come come by with, a, with an ingot and give me $1,000, give me an ounce of gold back. Well, by then it could be twenty five hundred dollars. Correct. So you have to go out now, right? Having gotten a thousand and spent it on his used car, you have to go out and fork up twenty five hundred hundred dollar twenty five hundred dollar bills to get from a dealer an ounce of gold to put it on my desk.
0: So that's why you need a unit of measure. Yes, certainly. And that was my concern with the reserve currency. If it goes away, then whatever it is that's going to be the reserve currency will be the thing we measure against the metals.
1: Yes. And you say reserve currency. I'm, I'm not so sure it'll be or ought to be currency.
0: Well, uh, no, I'm just saying yeah. we call the U.S. No, dollar know. the reserve currency. I'm See, more re-
1: if We go back to the gold standard. What the gold standard meant, and, and this is really pretty simple. If you go back to the gold standard, what we're talking about here is that for all the paper money that the government had out, in effect, issued, that was circulated. M3. Yeah, there was gold. Albeit, I think, at, at a fixed price, but put that aside for the moment. But presumably somebody could collect all the paper money there was in the country, say, and take it someplace. And for each dollar, there would be a dollar's worth of gold. Right? Okay. That's what redeemable meant. That's what the gold standard meant.
0: So what you're talking about is dollar for dollar.
1: Well, dollar for gold. Or dollar right, for I mean ounce. that. But yeah, but I, dollar for ounce. That's why they had to cut loose from the gold standard. The gold standard is what kept the, the printers honest. I mean, if Bernanke had to have an an ounce of gold or whatever um, for for every piece of paper he printed, he couldn't do that.
0: I have a wild question. Is the Federal Reserve, which is private, unconstitutional?
1: (laughs) Well, I'm not so sure it's private. And the reason I'm not so sure it's private, I mean, as you know, this is a whole other discussion, but... I'm not sure it's private because it was created by the government in in a gov- essentially in a government statute. So I'm not so sure and and it's of course the, the chairman is 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 appointed by the President, and you
0: know I have a video of Alan Greenspan telling a <laughs> newscaster that they're private and they're answerable to nobody.
1: Well, I mean certainly, I mean, I literally have it. Certainly, the second part is true, and I think because the second part is true, It behooves him to say the first part, that it's private, and I'd say it's quasi-private, quasi-public. I wrote on my blog, I knew Alan Greenspan um, in the old days when I represented Ayn Rand, and and there was a circle of people around her, one of whom was Alan Greenspan, and um, he's either gone crazy or reverted to type. I'm not sure which, but in my on my blog, there's an article. If somebody scrolls down far enough, they'll find it. And it's entitled, From Objectivist, which is her philosophy that he purported to subscribe to, From Objectivist to Statist. <laughs> <laughs> and now, of course, as you may know, he's repudiated um, her entire influence on his ideas. We wrote a piece for a magazine she had, uh, my wife and I on on conscription, on the draft, and then the next issue, there was one by Alan which was entitled "Gold and Economic Freedom." You really want to have a laugh? Go find that, and read it. And, Do you
0: have it on your uh, site?
1: Um, I may have a link to it, but if you put in "gold" in Google, "gold and economic freedom," and Alan Greenspan, I think you'll find it. Okay. It's not. It's it's not like the same guy. It's like he came out of a Chinese POW camp after having been brainwashed. Interesting, um, interesting. But that's uh, that's yet another discussion. But so- coming back to the gold clause, it can be a very very useful device. And and as you probably know from talking to Ed, <coughs> pardon me, it was created as a result of what the government did um, in after the Civil War. You see, Lincoln ran out of money to fight. I mean, real money to fight the Civil War. So they said, where are we going to get some more money? We've got to pay these uniform guys, and we got to pay these musket guys and, and buy all these horses and whatever, gunpowder, and we need money. Well, we don't have it, and we can't get it. So I'll tell you what, let's print some, right? And uh, what color do you think they were on one side? They were green. And in my course, by the way, I talk about this having to do with repudiation of contracts. Greenbacks were printed to finance the Civil War, and they were made, quote, legal tender for all debts, public and private, quote. What does that mean? That means if you would loan some guy real money or gold or whatever, silver, and at the end of it, he came to pay you back in this this money, this fiat money, uh, these greenbacks. You say, I don't want this. is just paper. It's got paper and ink on it. Now you destroyed the paper by putting all this ink on it with all these numbers and these symbols and God we trust and whatever. I don't want that. I want real money. the The, uh, the debtor would say to you. Take a look, get your magnifying glass, and look what it says here in little tiny print. It says, legal tender for all debts, public and private. That means you've got to take it. And if you don't take it, that's it. It's the end of the debt. I don't owe you anything. That's what they did. That's what greenbacks are. And that's what so-called Federal Reserve notes are.
0: Aren't the Federal Reserve notes now simply promises to pay, but not final settlement? To
1: pay what? To pay more Federal Reserve notes. (laughs) Which are are promises to pay what?
0: That's what I want to know.
1: Well, I can tell you it's very clear. More Federal Reserve notes. (laughs) No. I mean, it says... The, the twenty i have i wish i had taken out of my file when we spoke before we spoke it says payable to the bearer on demand twenty dollars in gold oh yeah it's a promise to pay a promise to pay what to pay another promise <laughs> it's like musical chairs indeed indeed right the music is playing and the notes are circulating and when the music <laughs> stops <laughs> There's one less chair, except when, these mus- when this music stops, there aren't going to be any more chairs.
0: How do we fast-track using the gold clause? And are you concerned the gold clause will go away?
1: What do you mean by go away?
0: Be overruled or overtaken. No, or-
1: I don't think so, because gold is... And I don't think there'll be a confiscation either, because when they did that in, in '34, gold was part of the monetary system. And I think to confiscate gold now when it's not part of the monetary system is ironic. Um, it it wouldn't—I I don't think it would wash. But, I, I but I, gold
0: is used in monetary.
1: No, it's not part of the U.S. monetary system anymore. It's divorced completely from. That's the problem, isn't it?
0: Well, I think I have to beg to differ with you on this, and I'll tell you why. Not frontally, and certainly not in the essence of how society operates. But there is gold and silver manipulation. Oh, um, that's sure. what Gata was formed for it's, to deal with that,
1: and then Ted Butler and all that.
0: But we don't use it in the day to day. Is that what you mean?
1: Well, it's uh, more we don't use it in that. We don't use it day to day. It's not part of the monetary system. It doesn't back the currency. Correct. Right. Well, it's interesting. I mean, Ted Butler. You're familiar with yes, the, of course. Oh, Ted Butler makes the point, and it's a good one that even if Comex folded and, and all these future contracts were proved to be as he believes and I believe to be spurious and, and to be backed by more promises, by the way, by more Federal Reserve notes. Um, it wouldn't be a cataclysmic financial event. And I think the same is true of gold, except that there would be a flight of paper into into metals, whether it was gold or copper or minor stocks or whatever. But it's not part of the monetary system the way it was in Roosevelt's time and before, where it was actually, paper was actually redeemable into um, into uh, gold. In that sense, it's not part officially of the monetary
0: system. How is the Gold Clause book doing, and are people still purchasing it, or is it more... Kind of hidden, and people don't know that it's around. Still,
1: it's it's the latter. It was uh, it was published in eighty, so that's what almost thirty years ago. Interesting. Um, Interesting. It's available um, on um, on um, a print-on-demand basis. Of um, I think it's either iUniverse or
0: looks like Barnes or, and Noble has it. And yeah, Amazon. And
1: yeah, if you go to my my website and go to the te- the button that says books, and then just scroll down to close to the bottom, um, you can click on it, and I think Barnes & Noble has it. It's with either, it was published again, or republished, print-on-demand by either Ix Libris or iUniverse. I forget which one, I think iUniverse, but it's available.
0: You said that you do, I want to switch here for a moment, you said that you train lawyers and coach lawyers and get lawyers up to speed about the Constitution. Do you also do that with regard to the gold contracts? And gold
1: clause. Well, I've consulted with, with lawyers. I get a call every once in a while from a lawyer who says, you know, a client of mine turned up the lease on their building, and the lease was made in, in 1901 or something. It was a 99-year lease, and this was a couple of years ago. And uh, they wondered whether the gold clause was works still. Or I would get a call from somebody who said that their father or grandfather died and they found an old bond uh, somewhere. Matter of fact, I'm looking at my copy of the first edition of the Gold Clause, and uh, the designer, the publisher, uh, used as the cover a green bond from the Western Maryland Railroad Company, Wow! and it's entitled First Mortgage 4% 50-Year Quote Registered Gold Bond. So you know, when a when when a railroad sold bonds, they became debtors, and the people who bought the bonds became creditors. And right here, smack on the cover of this book, it says "Registered Gold Bond." But uh, to answer your question, it's available. I think Ed's, Ed Vieira's book is certainly going to eclipse it. I don't know what what he's what he's written, but uh, if it's if it's brand new, as apparently it is, it's going to eclipse my work. It was very generous and gracious of him to um, acknowledge that I was the first one.
0: Yeah, he did, actually. Well, I, know you told was, me. I was really impressed. I was and very
1: grateful to hear that. Is there an- most of the people not only don't acknowledge previous work, but they steal it.
0: <laughs> I've seen a lot
1: of that. Oh yeah, particularly on the internet. Well, that, that article I wrote, I mentioned to you about, which was the seminal article on how Roosevelt stole the gold, um, I wrote for the Brooklyn Law Review when I was a faculty member in 1973, and uh, it's, somebody's using it on the internet to raise money. <laughs>
0: wow, what a backhanded compliment! Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, but it's by the way, that's a very interesting article. Um, and again, if say you the heard,
0: name of it again, please.
1: Well, it's called. Uh, let me think what it's called. Um, How America's lost the right to own gold and became criminals in the process. But the way to find it is to go on my blog.
0: It's on your blog. I see it right now. Yeah,
1: okay. If you go on my blog, there's a link to it.
0: Yes, I see it.
1: I think the link... You have a lot
0: of great articles on your I blog. I think the
1: link is to the... Thank you. I think the link is to the people who stole it, actually. <laughs> it was easier to-, to link to them to the to a 1973 issue of the Brooklyn Law Review.
0: Henry Mark Holzer, what do you think is going to happen now with regard to your work in the Constitution? What are you hoping to happen?
1: I'm hoping to inform and enlighten enough people about the the true Constitution, what's happened to it, and why, so that they can be effective voices for a resurgence of true constitutionalism. Um, That's what I'm I'm trying to do with these efforts. And... uh, Um, All I can do is, is, I'm only one person, all I can do is put it out there and hope other people pick it up and run with it. You know, a quarterback can only throw the ball. Somebody's got to be at the other end to catch it and run with it. Indeed. And that's what I'm hoping happens.
0: Well, ladies and gentlemen, we have been interviewing Henry Mark Holzer, who is the author of The Gold Clause, What Is It?, and How to Use It Profitably, and many other books He is an expert, not only teacher, but practitioner, writer, thinker, researcher in constitutional law and everything you want to know about the Constitution. You can reach him at henrymarkholzer.com. There will be links on the site. And I really want to thank you for taking time out of your day. I look forward to being in your class and learning more about what I need to know about the Constitution that I don't know and how it will help me in the present and into the future of my life. Thank you so much.
1: My pleasure.